Every neighborhood has a tomboy. When the guys get together to play some ball, they're usually not surprised if one of the guys is, well, a gal. It's a classic playground tradition, except that everyone figures the tomboy will grow up to be another traditional figure, you know, the girl next door. Shannon showed no signs of that direction. A tomboy, since childhood, she continued to push the masculine side of her personality to the forefront. She came to think of herself as a living, walking mistake. When God made her, she figured, he had poured a boy spirit into a girl body. Such a mindset is going to lead sooner or later to frustration and despair. There were reasons. You see, Shannon had been a victim of sexual abuse. That experience damages different people in different ways. For Shannon, it was an indication that being a girl placed her in danger, that being pretty or feminine enhanced her as a target. Things were done to girls, and if she wasn't a girl, maybe maybe they'd leave her alone. Shannon also came out of her abuse with a distorted view of relationships with the opposite sex. Though she hung out with guys and participated in sandlot games with them, she had no clue how to relate to them outside of athletics. Most of all, she believed that she had no real value as a human being. Otherwise, why would anyone have done that thing to her? The abuser was a male figure who was supposed to be a figure of trust. So who or what in life could be counted on? The question seemed rhetorical, but because there was really no answer. Shannon's only response was to toughen up. She wore her hair short. She focused on sports. She stayed grimy and sweaty as much as possible. It matched the dirtiness that she felt inside. She was sarcastic and assertive, but it was only a mask to hide the depression and the confusion beneath the facade. All of this was relatively manageable until she hit puberty. Before that, Shannon could simply be a little girl climbing trees, stealing second, playing catch, but adolescence was approaching and and things were starting to change. Girls painted their nails and they talked about clothing and she didn't fit into that world at all. And the dynamic was changing with the guys too. It wasn't going to be cool to be a tomboy much longer as they began to relate to girls through attraction rather than athleticism. Shannon had no place at all. I'm a mistake. A misfit. She thought, I have no future. As she thought about it, she realized that she craved love to give it and to receive it. Love could rescue her from shame. It could make her feel like a person of worth. Like many adolescents, she sexualized the feelings in her heart. So desperate was her desire for caring that she reached back to the time of her abuse And she took hold of the idea of sexual expression she found there. It was the most obvious way to get attention, to find some form of love. It was unhealthy. It was self-destructive. But it was all she knew. She understood the deal. I will consent to this and let you do that. And you will give me love and acceptance in return. But of course, no real satisfying connections came out of that arrangement. She offered sexuality, and that's all she got back. Throwing herself at boys didn't make her feel any more complete as a girl. She coveted love and acceptance 
from her own gender, almost inevitably she began to wonder about a lesbian identity. She pursued the question not overtly, but through pornography. Again, she was exploring the question through sexualizing it. She, this hadn't helped her understand boys, and, and it certainly didn't help her understand girls. Once again, her pursuit of love didn't bring her any sense of acceptance or belonging. In fact, the harder she chased, the lonelier she felt. She just wanted to love and be loved. Shannon was coming on the guys sexually, yet consuming same-sex pornography privately trying desperately to satisfy the hunger in her heart for intimacy. But instead, she felt a growing sense of isolation. We're in a series right now called God's at War. If you haven't been here, or if you're not sure what that means, what we're talking about is we're taking a look at, at how the Lord God wants to be the center of our attention, of our love, of our life. He wants to be the Lord of our life. But in this world that we live in, there are all kinds of things, gods, idols, fighting for control, fighting for our love, fighting for our attention. And God all along is saying, I want, I jealously and zealously want to be the love of your life. And as we've taken a look at different areas of our life, we've come into these different temples that we've created. These different temples that house different kinds of God. The, the first week we looked at this temple of power. And how in the temple of power there are these various gods like the God of money. And the God of achievement. The God of success. The, the God of, of future plans. These gods that when they're first given to us can be good things. God wants us to have money as a tool in our life. He wants us to have achievement and to be motivated to succeed. He wants us to plan for our future. But he also wants us to understand that he's God, they are not. And when we come into this temple, and instead of using these things as tools, we begin to worship and bow down to them. We've replaced God on the throne of our heart. Last week, we came into a different temple. It was this temple of pleasure. And on this temple, in this temple of pleasure, we find some gods. We find, we find the God of entertainment. We find the God of sexual desire. We find the God of just having fun. You know, those gods that God gave us things to enjoy in our life. He gave us sex to enjoy within the context of marriage. He gave us entertainment and fun to enjoy, even though the football wasn't very fun yesterday. He gave, us, he gave us things and entertainment to enjoy our lives, but he never intended for these things to sit on the throne of our heart to be the thing that we arranged the rest of our life around. He never wanted those things to be God. He still wanted to be the Lord God of our life. And then some of us come to this temple of pleasure from a place of needing and seeking comfort to fill an emptiness and we want to fill it with maybe things like food and drugs and alcohol. And instead of using these things as tools, we begin to use them as things to fill our life in the place that God wants to be. And so today we're going to come to a final temple. This temple we're going to talk about this week and next week. 
But today we're going to take a look at a few gods that live in this temple to see how they fit in. And I want you to think about this question as we go into this temple today. And I want you to think, and if you want to fill in the blanks on your outline on your bulletin this week just to help you keep up, that would be great. The question is this. We all have a love-shaped void in our hearts that needs to be filled. The question is, who should fill that void? We all, every single person in this room, has a love-shaped void in their heart that needs to be filled. The real question is, who's going to fill that void in your life? And today, we're going to take a look in this final temple. This is called the Temple of Love. This is a temple that we've built where we set up shrines to, to the gods of romance, to the, the god of family. And yes, the one god that we're not going to deal with today, we're going to talk about next week, maybe the most central god of all, the god of me. But before we get there, we're going to talk about these other gods you see, in this temple of love, we get to the heart of our idolatry, if we're honest. God created us for relationships. He created us to love one another and to be loved and to desire that kind of love. Our relationships are important. But God wants to tell us today that while your relationships in your life are important, they are not God. And we need to understand that clearly. I want to start off by sharing a story with you you might have heard before out of John chapter 4. It's the first 26 verses. I'm not going to read the story. I'm just going to kind of summarize it for you. It's the story where Jesus and his disciples are going up to Galilee. To get there, they've got to go through this region called Samaria. Now, you've got to understand, in Samaria was people called Samaritans. And you've heard the story of the Good Samaritan, no doubt. But in Samaria, there was people that from a racial standpoint, were kind of rejected by the Jews. The Jews had wanted to have nothing to do with them. And so Jesus and his disciples, being Jewish, passing through this region, something strange kind of happened one day. You see, Jesus, passing through his disciples, went to a small town to see if they could find some food. And Jesus was left all around, all alone, outside this town, sitting at this well. It was a well, actually, that was provided. They said it went all the way back to the days of Jacob. Well, Jesus was sitting at this well, and it was all alone. He'd been hot, and he was tired from his journey. And this woman comes up, this Samaritan woman. And Jesus just asked her, could I have something to drink? And it kind of sets her back. Wait a second. Not only am I a Samaritan, I'm a woman. And in that culture, this just didn't happen. You didn't speak to a woman that wasn't your wife, and you didn't. You didn't speak to a Samaritan like this. It was just really strange, and it took her back. She was like, why are you asking me for a drink? And that's when Jesus says something curious to her. He says, you know, actually, if you knew who it was that was talking to you, you'd be asking me for a drink. She was like, but you don't even have anything to draw water with. What are you talking about? And that's where Jesus makes this statement in, in verses 13 and 14 I want to read to you. He says this. Jesus answered this woman. He says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And with those words, Jesus gives her the first hint of what he has to offer what he's saying is he's, he's telling this woman, I see that you have a void in your life. 
I see that you know you're missing something. I'm thirsty because I've been traveling, and a little bit of water will satisfy that. But the journey you're traveling on has left you with a void much bigger, and I've got something that can satisfy that. And I think he had her attention at this point. But then what he does next really gets her attention because she wants to know more. And he says, why don't you go to town? Why don't you get your husband and bring him back? And I'll tell you about this water. And she says, well, I don't have a husband. And then Jesus stops her cold in her tracks. He says, you're right. You've actually had five husbands. And the man you're with now isn't even your husband. I can only imagine how her jaw dropped. They didn't have Facebook. You know, he couldn't stalk her and figure this out. And so... She says, I can clearly see that you're a prophet. I want to know more about this water. I want to know more about what it is you're offering. And Jesus says these words in John 4, 23 and 24. He says, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit. And in truth, and I want you to understand, and we could really get in and dig into this whole story today, but really here's the point. Jesus is saying, I see that you have a void in your life, and you're trying desperately to fill it. You're trying desperately to fill it with, with men and love and acceptance and intimacy. And what you're finding is every time you bring someone in and put them in that place in your life, they fail you. They let you down. That place never seems to be filled. And so you turn to the next man, and he doesn't fill that void. And so you turn to the next man, and it just seems like this never-ending cycle that never gets the void of that love, that, that love-shaped hole in your heart never seems to get filled by these men that you're seeking after. You see, what Jesus knew and what he was trying to communicate to this woman is he was saying, and he eventually does reveal to her who he is. He's the one that's come from God. And he's saying, I don't care how much you try to fill this void with love and acceptance from men. The void will always be there because they're going to always let you down. But there is one that can fill that void. And he says, I'm him. Not romantically, but because I come from God and I offer something to you that no other man in the world could ever offer. No matter what other gods that we've discussed up to this point in this series, whatever gods might have been in control of your life, I'm convinced that we all have to be honest with ourselves today as we come into the temple of love. As we take a look at the, the gods of love and, and romance and relationships, I think we all have to be honest and say that these are gods that could very easily, if they have not already, become gods that have risen above the Lord God on the throne of our heart. And what I want us to do is take an honest and careful assessment today to see if the gods at war for our heart live here in the temple of love. So the first God that we're going to talk about is this God of romance. Now, please, I'm going to start this off with a disclaimer, the same one I've given you every week. None of the things we're talking about in and of themselves are bad. God gave us romance and love and acceptance. It's a beautiful gift. 
but there's a way he intended for us to use it. Maybe you've heard a story out of Genesis. You see, I want to share the story with you briefly. It's a story out of Genesis chapter 29. As we take a look at this first God today, the God of romance. This story is about a young man named Jacob. Now, if you want to follow the, the family lineage here, you have Abraham. Abraham had a son, Isaac, right? Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau, right? Jacob is the younger of the two. Jacob's the one we're talking about today. Jacob goes to his uncle's land. He's traveling. He's looking for his uncle's family. He's trying to get away from things. He needs a vacation. He gets away, and he finds that he's at a well, ironically enough, another well story today. And he's drinking from this well, and all of a sudden, this group of women come up, and one of them catches his eye. There's one of these girls that comes up beautiful. He, he can't think about anything else. He has to get to know this girl. He asks her name. Her name's Rachel. Who's your dad? Laban. Oh, you're my cousin. Back then, that was okay. They were from the Alabama side of Israel. So... <laughs> So they were, the cousin thing was fine. So they, he wants to get to know Rachel. He, he was, oh man, he was in love with Rachel. He could, this was love at first sight. And so he says, take me to your father. So he goes to Laban. He goes to Laban and, and after a few days staying there and getting to know things and, every, and know the family, he tells Laban, he says, Laban, I want your daughter Rachel's hand in marriage. Laban says, Okay, I'll tell you what. You work for me as my field hand for seven years, and I'll give you my daughter's hand in marriage. Immediately, Jacob agrees. Okay, fine, I'll do that. And so for the next seven years, he works Laban's land. Seven years comes to pass. Seven years, you've committed, and he was really in love, okay? He gets through these seven years and finally gets to the place where the day comes. He's ready to take his bride, and so they set up the wedding, and Laban... Good to his word, provides his daughter's hand in marriage. And she comes down the aisle in and, and her wedding veil, and they get married. And on the wedding night, they consummate the marriage. The next morning, he wakes up, and he sees not Rachel. Laban had tricked him. You see, Laban had an older daughter. Her name was Leah. And Laban couldn't imagine giving away his younger daughter before giving away his older daughter. But Leah... Leah wasn't quite the looker that Rachel was, and so he figured he was going to need to maybe be a little deceitful in order to get Leah's hand given in marriage. So Jacob realizes what he's done, and he says, Laban, what about our deal? Rachel's the one I wanted. Well, you've married Leah. She is now your wife. I tell you what, you work for me seven more years, and I'll give you Rachel too. <laughs> Fourteen years for one girl. Some of us will put in more time than that, right, Jamie? Yeah. Um, so he goes ahead and he gets Rachel's hand in marriage. And that's where I want to stop the story. Imagine for a minute that you're Leah. Imagine that you're the one that was the one that wasn't wanted. Jacob now gets Rachel and he's in love with her. And here's Leah. Imagine how desperate she is for her husband to love her. Imagine how desperately she just wants to have his attention. I want to read you a passage out of this chapter, 30, 29, chapter 29 in Genesis, verses 31 to 35. I want you to see how Leah handles this. 
It says this, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive. But Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. It didn't happen. She conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. But it didn't work. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. And do you think Jacob gave her his love? It's heartbreaking. But I want you to look at this last verse. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Listen, this time... I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah, and then she stopped having children. What I love about that story is Leah realized that no man was ever going to be able to fill that void. She realized that the only place she was ever going to receive the love and acceptance that she'd so desperately wanted was when she decided to put the Lord God on the throne of her heart. You see, we're going to let each other down. We can't afford to base our entire self-worth and the meaning in our life on romance. It's not that romance is bad. Romance is a beautiful gift. You remember the story Jerry Maguire? Remember that movie? And, and, and some of you have seen that movie, Jerry Maguire, where he's the, uh, the sports agent and everything. Well, he marries Renee Zellweger. Uh, Tom Cruise's character, Jerry Maguire, marries Renee Zellweger. And they get married in this movie. It was a marriage of convenience. It was a marriage because both of them were alone and they were working together and so they could get married. Well, there comes a point when Jerry Maguire has this great success in his career that really puts him over the top. And he's all alone on this business trip. He was always away and she was doing her thing and they were very separated. Their relationship was very disconnected. But Jerry has this magnificent night where everything seems to come together and he wants to celebrate and he looks around and he doesn't have anybody there with him. And that's when he realizes he has a void in his heart. And he tries calling his wife. He can't get her. So he gets on a plane and he flies home. And he walks in the living room for the big famous scene where, where he ends it by saying, you complete me. And all of us want to cry and our hearts break. And you know how we're all kind of feeling, you know, by the end of that movie and everything like that. And we're led to believe by Hollywood that, you know, from that point on, everything was perfect. And they lived happily ever after. And life was just wonderful. Because we all know that's how romance works in real life, right? Thank you. The point is this. Hollywood wants to sell us this idea that romance will complete us, and we all know the truth. We watch a movie like that, and we kind of wish it was that way, but we just know it's not. Romance isn't bad, but it's never going to complete us. It's always going to let us down. You see, God's saying if you really want a happily ever after Come to me and let me fill that void. There's a happily ever after I'm offering you in heaven for all of eternity, and I promise you it will never let you down. 
You see, romance is good. But romance is not God. And when you can get to a place, if you have lifted up romance and the idea of a man or a woman completing you and fulfilling you and making you complete, let that go because that love-shaped void in your heart will not be filled by romance. The woman at the well found it out. Leah found it out. I'm pretty sure Renee Zellweger found it out after the credits rolled. What about you? There's one other God that we're going to talk about today. This one's going to be a tough one. It's the God of family. In the story, The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, many of you know C.S. Lewis by his Chronicles of Narnia writings, but he wrote this story, The Great Divorce. Lewis takes us on a bus ride to heaven that examines why people choose for or against living their lives with a full commitment to God. He shows that what we're doing is standing at the very gate of heaven and choosing between the eternal glory of God and the empty illusions of earth. The great divorce is the divide between heaven and earth. As they wait at this sort of way station for each newcomer on the bus, there's this bright shining figure who steps out of heaven to receive his or her old friend and to encourage them to make the full journey to heaven and the presence of God. They're not angels, but they're acquaintances from life. These acquaintances have been saved and are now in heaven, and they've come back to reach out to these who now await their eternal destination. Pam is a woman who is disappointed to see that it's her younger brother, Reginald, who is sent to greet her. She wanted it to be her dearly departed son, Michael, to whom she devoted her life. Reginald explains that she isn't ready for that yet. She must first be eager to see God himself, and then all the wonderful blessings of heaven will be available. God isn't simply a way to get to heaven. Heaven is a way to get to God. And Pam must approach it that way. Reginald says, I'm afraid the first step is a hard one, but after that you'll go on like a, like a house on fire, and when you learn to want someone else besides Michael. Pam doesn't know what her younger brother is talking about. She says, well, never mind. I'll, I'll do whatever's necessary. The sooner I begin it, the sooner they'll let me see my boy. And Reginald said, well, I can't begin with that kind of attitude. You're treating God only as a means to get to Michael, he points out. She must learn to want God for his own sake. He can't come second in her affections. God won't even allow being tied for first. He wants to be first. You exist as Michael's mother only because you first exist as God's creature, Reginald said. That relation is older and closer. He goes on to explain to Pam that human beings can't make one another really happy for long. You can't love a fellow creature fully until you love God. It becomes clear that Pam's love for her son was something of an obsession in life. After the boy died, she kept his room just as he left it for ten years. She neglected her other children, her husband, and her parents to the pain and disappointment of them all. All of this was sacrificed on the altar of her adoration of her son. No one has a right to become between me and my son, not even God, Pam declares. 
And it's very clear that this woman is so set on this view that she has chosen her own eternal destination. In C.S. Lewis's view, it's not so much that God won't let us into heaven, it's that we won't let ourselves in. If we can't learn how to say, thy will be done, then finally God must sadly say to us, okay then, thy will be done. And I wonder, I wonder for how many of us has our family, our children, our spouse, our parents become more than a gift from God, but has replaced God on the throne of our hearts. You see, I think Jesus was thinking about this in Luke 14, verses 25 through 27, when he says this. He says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and he turned to them and said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. This past Wednesday night in our life group here at the church, Betty Hearn told me something, told our group something that really stood out to me about George. You see, Betty and George had five children, and they spent all these years raising these children and, and, and raising them through their home. And it was, it was such a neat thing to hear her talk about. She said, one day, once all the kids had grown and left the house, George looked at her and said, for all those years that we were raising kids, I was content to be in sixth place but now I want to be in first. You see, I think George got to a place in his life where he began to see things a little bit like God. You see, I think what George began to learn and what God has known all along is that God's not content to be in sixth place in our life. He's not even content to be second. He's not even content to be tied for first. God wants to be number one. And Jesus was telling us that all the rest are such a distant second that really there's no competition. There's no comparison. I can't imagine, I can't imagine what it's like to lose a child. I don't ever want to imagine it. Some of you have been through that, and I know you have. I can't imagine what that pain's like, but I, I know we can read a story in Genesis chapter 22 about it. It's a story of Abraham. Abraham and Sarah, for years and years, they were getting advanced at age, and they were desperate for, they were desperate for a son, for a baby. And they knew they had gotten too old for it, even though God had promised them a child. Well, one day it finally happens. Even though it went against all... Logic and expectation, Sarah's pregnant. They have a child and they name him Isaac. This was Jacob's dad. And Isaac, as he began to grow as a boy, was, I can only imagine, the apple of Abraham and Sarah's eye. This was just the pinnacle of what they were living their life for. One day, as Isaac is a young boy, God comes to Abraham. says, Abraham, I want you to take your boy. I want you to take him up on a mountainside, and I want you to sacrifice him. I want you to kill him and give him to me. Can you imagine? I can't imagine what was going through Abraham's mind. 
what might have been going through his heart and soul as he thought about what it was. God gave him this gift and was now asking for it back. But to Abraham's credit, he picked his boy up and he prepared everything he would need for the sacrifice. And they went on the journey to the mountain God had instructed. And he prepared the sacrifice and he began to get the wood ready to burn and he took the boy who was bound and he laid him up on the altar. And he drew out his knife and he was ready to plunge it into the boy to take his life as a sacrifice to God. And right as he was about to bring the knife down, God stops him and says, Abraham, stop. I just wanted to know if I really was God in your life or not. I just wanted to know if I was really number one. A couple of verses after that, verses 15 through 18, an angel of the Lord says to Abraham from heaven a second time, and he says, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. See, I don't know what place family holds in your life right now. Family is good for some, for most. Sometimes family can be hurtful. But at the end of the day, family is not God. And we need to understand that God wants us to be there for our family and to take care of our families. But he does not want family to be the Lord of our life. And we've got to understand the place that they take next to the Lord God. Looking back, Shannon could never remember pursuing God. What was clear is that God pursued her. It was in her junior year that she met a teacher who was a dedicated follower of Christ. He let Shannon know that he was praying for her, and this led to conversations about God. There was a spiritual void in her life, and she knew it. I need something, she told him. I need something in my life. And so he told her what it meant to find ultimate love and acceptance in Jesus Christ. Come to church with my wife and me, he said. We'll save you a place. One Sunday, she decided to test it out. She drove across town and found that even though she hadn't told them she was coming that weekend, the couple was waiting for her on the back row with a seat saved for whenever she decided to come. It felt amazing to be cared about in this way. Afterward at home, she cried out to God, I don't know if you're real, she prayed. I don't know if I accept all this stuff or not, but I need you. I need something Shannon became a Christian, and she reached out to the church. For her, the church turned out to be God's hospital, where her wounds could be healed by him. She heard his voice saying to her what he says to you as well. You are not a mistake. I make no mistakes. In you, I made a beautiful daughter whom I love passionately, completely, and eternally. Come to my arms and Feel the forgiveness that is a forever thing. 
I have the love and tenderness you have always sought. I have the healing that your soul deeply needs. If Shannon had never met Brian, just the love and acceptance of Christ would have been enough for her. She knew beyond any shadow of a doubt that Jesus completed her. But as she surrendered her life fully to him, she discovered that God had other blessings in store. Shannon and Brian dated for two and a half years, during which time they agreed to abstain from physical affection. Hand-holding and hugs were the limit. Brian understood that Shannon was working things out, and he was fine with this arrangement. I just want to be with you, he said. She found how sweet, how enriching the relationship between a man and woman can really be when they're bound by the love and worship of the true God. I don't know if the woman at the well ever found this. I don't know if Leah did. I think she did. Shannon did. What about you? Whether it's the love of family or the love of romance, you understand that those are blessings to be enjoyed once you've allowed God to come fill this love-shaped void. When you allow God to fill that void and be the Lord of your life, he will bless you with these other things. He will complete you with them. There is only one who can fill the love-shaped void in your life. And my question to you today is, will you let him? I told you at the beginning, there's one more God we're going to deal with. We're going to deal with it next week. The God of me. And that's how we're going to conclude our series because I think it all comes back to that one God. But today, we're going to offer an invitation. It's an opportunity to you to respond to what you've heard. Maybe for too long now, You've been trying to fill this love-shaped void in your life with everything except for God. And he's wondering if today's the day you're going to fill it with him. Will you pray with me, please? Father, we want to come before you today, and we want to we acknowledge that, well, we're all, guilty of, we're all guilty of trying to find things in our life that will complete us, things that are not you, things that, well, things that you gave us as gifts to enjoy but never intended for them to be the center of our universe. And God, if that describes anyone here today, which I think it describes all of us, I pray that you'll move us to take a step towards you and putting you back on the throne where you belong. God, we love you and thank you for the opportunity to worship, the opportunity to, to come before you and say, God, take the rightful place in our life that you deserve. God, thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.